0: Previously on Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary. When was his drinking a real problem? When did you notice it to be a problem?
1: When he got an accident in Davis, he rolled the tangerine. He rolled it off Country Road.
2: This is my opinion, my opinion alone, that Oscar was on a wrong path at the end of his life. He was no longer focused on his academics. He was kind of lost in that, in the rage.
0: What was going on with Manny?
1: Like people that were his friends all of a sudden turned on him and it's like, wow, how how come you didn't go get him?
0: I'm at the UC Davis radio station where Oscar Gomez used to broadcast his show. This is the original place. The original place. Wow, KDVS. How many (laughs) watts? We have a lot. We can, we're 50 square mile radius. I'm being shown around by someone who knew Oscar in his college days.
2: Francisco Dominguez is my name. We're at KDVS uh, radio station here at UC Davis. Uh, I'm a DJ down here. And uh, I have a show coming up here, Uh, Radio in Fort Mar. I'm a public affairs host.
0: Like so many college radio stations, KDVS is down a flight of stairs in what feels like the basement of the campus.
2: There's a lot of old posters from all the old shows that go way
0: back. Yeah.
1: What's up, what's up? It's DJ Mussey, and you are listening to KDVS 90.3
3: FM. It is now 354. I have you guys for another... There
0: are a few couches with students hanging out, Rows of shelves filled with records, and the walls are covered floor to ceiling with flyers. Hey, Gary. Hey,
2: how you doing? How you doing, Gary? Fine, how are you? What's All right. Up? Gary is the, I would say he's the mayor of KDVS.
0: You know? huh. Self-elected, yeah. appointed. He's, he's been here. How many years, Gary? 35? You've been here since 1974. Every how many years do you see somebody like Oscar? Not many. You didn't get much media, especially on Chicano, Chicana issues. And he was right there at the forefront. We meet up with Francisco the next day, outside of a grocery store in Sacramento. Francisco says he and Oscar bonded because of their shared interest over indigenous knowledge. But there's another thing I want to follow up on. Something else you said yesterday, Francisco, which I, um, I, I want to understand um, is is from an indigenous perspective, let me see if I remember correctly and correct me. Death is heavy, you leave that alone. You
2: honor You honor death, okay, you honor death. Death, it is a sacred thing in its own way. And it's not anything to be messed with. And this is just my opinion, you know.
0: Francisco says he remembers activists taking up Oscar's death as a cause. People who he says knew nothing about what happened, but were using the situation to push their own agendas, often without regard to the facts. One example, a poem that was read at a memorial for Oscar.
2: Phil reads this poem about the police beating him down and killing him. And there was some marks on one of his wrists or something from where they had him tied and they were beating him and, and Phil gets all dramatic. I talked to him afterwards. I said, Phil, you know, this isn't right. You know, I said, you're, you're stating that Oscar was beaten to death, you know, by the police, a violent death. I said, do you, I said, were you there? He said, no. I said, do you know that this happened? He said, no. I said, so what's up? You don't do that. And he just got quiet and he said, you're right, Francisco. Yeah. That, 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 because that's adding to this drama
0: and not, let, and not letting him go. According to Francisco, this is one of many narratives that developed after Oscar's death. Some blamed authorities, and some blamed the people in Oscar's life. Look what happened. What happened to his
2: friend Nene? With all the drama, with all the rumors. You have another young man dead. That's two now. That's what I'm talking about. You do not mess with stuff. It's 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 unnatural. It's not part of being human. You're mess you're doing the wrong thing by by not letting go. There needs to be an ending to this. There
0: needs to be some rest. There needs to be some closure. What does closure look like? For many of Oscar's close friends and family, it's finding the person who they believe murdered Oscar. For Francisco, closure is about letting go, about accepting death, and moving on. What do I think of closure? I had thought I could help Oscar's family by finding answers, getting more facts about what happened. But what if by doing so, I'm making them relive their pain after Oscar died. Am I making it harder for them? I don't want to, but it's something I have to grapple with. And I'm thinking of someone else who struggles with that lack of closure, the person that I came to Sacramento to speak to, someone close to Oscar, a person who says he also was partly blamed for Oscar's death. I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez, and this is Imperfect Paradise, the Forgotten Revolutionary. This episode, the legacy of Oscar's death. We're in Sacramento proper, and I'm looking at a house over here that's got some, like, a uh, clay Aztec mask on it. This is uh, Eddie Salas's place, uh, one of Oscar's good friends. Oscar was really tight with Eddie Salas throughout his college years. They sometimes co-hosted La Onda Chicana together, and Eddie continued hosting the radio show after Oscar's death. Natalie and I brought him tamales to warm him up. I walk through the door and say a phrase I've heard Oscar and Eddie say on their show. Hey, aquí estamos y no nos vamos. I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> ya llegaron awesome. los ta- ya llegaron los tamales.
4: Yeah,
0: I know. I know. <laughs> At six foot six, Eddie towers over me with salt and pepper hair and thick black frame glasses. Inside the house, there's a thin layer of incense. I think it's copal, a type of resin that was burned by indigenous peoples. It has a sharp, piney smell that I remember from my Chicano movement days. Beautiful beautiful place. Oh, man.
4: Well, it's okay. Back. It's a little bit frickin' dirty, but it's all right. I need to come back. This is a museum.
0: Eddie's house is filled with crates of vinyl. There are speakers stacked on top of each other, a record player in one corner, a boombox in another, Eddie was no longer a student when Oscar came to UC Davis in 1990. Eddie was in his 30s, working for the Youth Authority. But one day, a mutual friend brought Oscar around to his house. Oscar
4: right away gravitated, and he started looking through my music. I could tell he was a a good guy. In fact, I think I even told him, come back. You're welcome here anytime. Come back. And it ended up being that I gave Oscar the keys And Oscar would come over. We used to stay up all night into the next morning, uh, play music, back and forth. And he'd eat all my food, and he'd write me letters. And then Oscar said, let's go to this party. I said, man, I can't go to that party, man. Shit, I'm all... He goes, shut up and get dressed and let's go. So I would go with him. Did you have a good
0: time? Of course. We always had a good time. Eddie saw Oscar's progression from a freshman to a senior at UC Davis. I want to know what changes Eddie saw in Oscar in those years.
4: In his freshman year, he was more uh, focused on academia. By the sophomore year, he was more aware. So he'd taken a lot of classes. And he had learned a lot of stuff. Blew his mind, a lot of history. And then in the sophomore year, I think he started working at the, at the packing shed. And then he started seeing agriculture
0: and Woodland. This is news to me. I didn't know Oscar was working manual labor jobs. I think his junior year, I would say,
4: was probably his most radical. He was getting a lot of popularity. So he started seeing things outside of UC Davis. He came up with the thing, you see Disneyland. They don't really help the people. They're not, they're not really focused on, on helping farm workers or, or helping anybody else. It's just themselves, you know, and it's a big joke. He would say, it's just a, a big joke. How about the people that live in wood and how about the people around here? And then he would, you know, put those things together in his commentary to me about how things were not fair and unjust, and he'd bring it to the radio. You know, Rasa, the university called the University of Davis, you know, the one
1: of the University of California, Disneyland. Was, For those of you who haven't heard, they have raised our fees, the estudiantes that go to school on here, they have raised the fees of all the estudiantes. It forces rasa and people of lower income to go up and get two jobs and go we'll have to, you know, to struggle. It's keeping the Raza out. It's keeping us out of education. They think that, you know, oh, they don't need these people to go get an education. We can use these Raza as our workers. We can use these people as our mechanics. We can use these people, you know, as just a that who are just gonna go out and do all our dirty work. Pero sabes qué It's about time that we realize, you know, all the stuff that they're doing to us aquí in this university and, all, and, and with the educational
4: and, um, system in general. I would say Oscar was like the Pied Piper with the young kids. The kids loved him, they gravitated to Oscar.
0: What about going into his last year? What about his senior year?
4: Oscar was—he really evolved
0: as—his
4: consciousness was really starting to evolve a, a lot
0: more. He went to Cuba. I'd heard about this Cuba trip before from a few of Oscar's friends, that the trip radicalized his political views. He went with a group that took foreigners to Cuba to support the ongoing socialist revolution. Unlike today, in the 90s, the U.S. government put a lot of restrictions on travel there. On his show, Oscar talked about how U.S. media showed the most gruesome and negative parts of the revolution. But that being in Cuba, among its residents, he saw a different side. Here he is on his radio show talking with fellow college students about the trip.
1: What did you guys see from that experience, you know, of living with the campesinos, you know, with the gente who were the people that worked the land over there?
3: At the camp, um... I would ask them how they felt, like the lawyers, for example, how they felt working in the fields, and and what they thought about that job. And it surprised me that that, well, coming here and being socialized in this country, that they feel that the work that the campesinos do is just as important contribution to the to Cuba as as any other uh, form or career is. And that impressed me a lot because. I'm from the valley, and uh, my my parents were farm workers, and and just to know that that in Cuba they would be respected, they would be highly appreciated instead for of
1: exploited. Expe- yeah
3: instead of exploited for the work that they do and
1: the campesinos are number one out there uh-huh. can't?
3: and here the California has built their riches off of the campesinos back and yet they do not give back um, the the respect that. That they deserve
1: I think it's important To let the people Out there know You know For a lot of people Who don't know What kind of society Or system that Cuba Runs by It, it runs under A socialist society You know And uh, one thing That was important Is the education You know They get free education Free health One of the most Important things That I saw That really blew me away Is I saw this Veterano guy This old 60 year old Vato who was there At the camp His name's Enrique And what he did Is that homeboy Opened up his His um The Vato opened up His shirt And he showed me Five big scars On his heart You know Five big You know from operations that he's had in the heart and he said, this didn't cost me one penny you know, I'd have to pay for anything, probably in the United States I'd have to die paying off that debt, you know, and that's something that he felt real proud of and he says that he owes that to the revolucion you know, to the revolution, you know, having the ability, you know, to just have free healthcare, you know, and that's something that's important and uh, what I want to say to a couple of you is that we're going to go to a little bit of a musical break, you know, and we're going to talk you know, uh, and uh, come back with uh, Maria and um, Marlene and we're going to talk a little bit more about La Lucha La vida con la raza en Cuba and how it connects to Nosotros, los Chicanos de Aslan, Cuba raza.
0: We will be back after this break.
1: How to L.A. is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history.
0: The 1920s were a huge
1: boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics.
0: It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's
1: food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: A few of Oscar's friends and family told me they suspected his trip to Cuba put him on some sort of government watch list. The trip added fuel to their theories that people in power had something to do with Oscar's death. We sent a public information request to the FBI asking for any documents in which Oscar's mentioned. We're still waiting for an answer. What we do know is that Oscar was expanding his activism outside of college in the last year of his life. And he was starting to think a lot about field workers and others doing manual labor. Eddie Salas says that summer before his death, Oscar worked at a produce weighing station not too far from UC Davis. He wanted to talk with laborers and see their struggles close up. What he learned was different from what he knew from his suburban L.A. County upbringing. Low wages, instability, and health issues from being sprayed with pesticides.
4: There were working-class people. There were immigrants. You know, there were homeboys. There were He would just, you know, Then I mean, he started, you know, getting knowledge from them and learning from them about how they felt about life. And then he'd take it back to the radio. And so Oscar, as a senior, was much more kind of mature and also very sure that He didn't want to just get a degree just to say he went to Davis. He was beyond all that now.
1: No, Raza, it's sad to see what is happening at the frontera. Yeah, that's right, the border today. As we know, the U.S. military and the INS have stiffened and militarized the border to make sure that no one comes over, quote-unquote, illegally. It is that border that enables patrones and greedy farmers to hire campesinos from Mexico, Central America, have them work under any conditions and pay them little or even nothing because if they complain, they will deport them leaving the campesino in a hard spot. Thus adjusting to the conditions of the evil oppressors. The migration continues and so does our history and our legacy. And we got to keep on hitting to the border crumbles. Don't put me down because I'm brown, but it's so Chicano. Too
0: brown, too down. At the same time, Eddie says Oscar was starting to grow disenchanted with Mecha, the Chicano student organization that introduced Oscar to activism in the first place.
4: Mecha was going through much turmoil at that time. Much turmoil, and he didn't want to be part of that turmoil. Like internal, internal politics? Internal politics, yes. Yes, internal politics. And it's always been the nationalists versus the Marxists. And then now you were going to have another group, the indigenous. So there was a third wave. What, you
3: know? what did each group want?
4: Uh, the nationalists were more... Uh, um, the Mexican-American experience. And I think the Marxists were more uh, self-determination, historical materialism, community like that. And I think that the indigenous were, were from way back and we have uh, practices that we
0: need to um, reappropriate to, to bring up. I saw this in college activist circles in San Diego too. Nationalists wanted a Chicano homeland. Aslan, which they believed to be occupied territory in the southwest United States. They believed theirs was an anti-colonial movement, like those of the Algerians and Palestinians. Then there were the Marxists, who felt the movement was about a worldwide class struggle against capitalism. And the indigenous were trying to reclaim the Mexica, the Aztec culture, nearly extinguished by Spanish conquest, by reclaiming rituals, like the sweat lodge, and by decolonizing their diet. And there were feminist voices within all these factions, too, pushing back on what they saw as toxic masculinity in the Chicano movement. And what did Oscar want to
4: focus on? I I think that Oscar had an understanding of all of it, but really, he was evolving, and then he kind of left mention because he
0: saw a bigger picture That bigger picture meant Oscar saw how all of these struggles were connected, and he wanted to fight for all of it, and that college activism was too narrow. I remember feeling this way in college, too, that Mecha was focused too much on what went on inside the campus. They did some important things, like fighting against racist language at the university and advocating for more Chicano representation in the school's administration. But on my daily bus rides to the affluent neighborhoods surrounding the campus, I saw the faces of immigrant women, like my mother, many of them going to jobs cleaning houses near the university, some of them with their young kids. On weekends, when I crossed the San Diego-Tijuana border to visit family, I'd see construction to make border walls thicker and higher while also thinking about recent confrontations between pro-immigrant activists and people who blamed immigrants for society's ills. I didn't see many Chicano activists on my campus trying to help people outside the university. And I remember this feeling too, of starting to understand the weight of the world's problems and how small you feel next to them, questioning whether you can do anything meaningful Eddie, says Oscar, was struggling with this feeling in 1994, the last year of his life. And he turned to drinking and smoking to let off steam.
4: That summer, I would say, okay. So that summer he was partying a lot more than he ever did. I think that really, in looking back now, that all that was a lot of his frustration and a lot of his... Because I think he had been disillusioned with UC Davis and all the matcha and everything about what he was seeing and what he was understanding that was happening in the community. 187, you know, uh, what happened in L.A. He started
0: really um, questioning his values. Prop 187 was big for Chicanos. The ballot measure took away public school and other public services from people who were undocumented. And what happened in L.A.? That was the uprising after the police beating of Rodney King, a black man. I do want to say that we don't know for sure why Oscar was drinking more during this time, if it could be attributed to his frustrations with student activism or if there were other factors. But we do know that Oscar was struggling in the months before his death. Eddie says that around this time, Oscar rolled his car, the tangerine. Eddie says he was the one who picked Oscar up after the accident. Oscar called me 3 o'clock in the morning.
4: I fucked up. Come and get me. And so I went to go get him. Was he drunk? Yeah, he was fucked up. Was that a red flag for you? No, I mean, yes and no, but Oscar was not a drinker. But he started to drink, and his body really wasn't... He had no really tolerance for alcohol because he really didn't... That was like his introduction
0: to it. Eddie wasn't the only one who noticed this. Oscar's friends decided there was no choice but to step in and take action. Juan González tells me that he, Ricardo Tapia, and... Art Corona did an intervention. Sure. I remember that.
4: So, a, what, did you, what do you remember I, about I, that? I, that, they were gonna, that they came up and they were talking to, they
0: were concerned. I remember Juan telling me that Oscar was getting in trouble in the last year of his life. And I want to know just what kind of trouble. We search for Oscar's name on the court website for the county where Oscar lived during college. And we get two matches. Two misdemeanors in the months right before his death. According to a case summary given to us by the Davis Police Department, in October 1994, at about 3 in the morning, Oscar broke the lock on a drink cooler at a store, took beer, and left without paying. When police came, Oscar resisted arrest. I think of how protective Mr. and Mrs. Gomez were with Oscar. This Oscar sounds so different than the preppy, fun-loving high school scholar-athlete. The other misdemeanor is from a month before that, in September of 1994. The court's clerk tells us they do not have a record for the case anymore. But based on the way it's labeled, it's most likely a traffic violation in Woodland, the city next to UC Davis. I'm guessing this might be when Oscar rolled his car. Here's Juan Gonzalez.
5: That was the crux of the issue, that accident. I think it scared Art Corona and Ricardo Tapia more. Like, they go, oh, we could have lost our friend because, like, they, they just said that was a pattern that they didn't like. They didn't like him putting his life at risk.
0: So how did the meeting start?
5: I think they just got to heart of the issue after a while. They go, hey, look, man, we're here because we're all concerned about you. We all love you. We want you to, like, calm the F down. We want you to settle down, focus on school. You're three, four years into this. Graduate. You should be graduating. Oscar, you know, he just, he just smirked it off. He says, hey, you guys are over-exaggerating all this. It's have everything under control.
0: Eddie says he had a separate talk with Oscar, telling him that he needed to pull himself together. As I've discovered, in the fall quarter of 1994, Oscar took a break from school, what's called a planned academic leave. Juan Gonzalez hoped that the time off would help Oscar.
5: Last time we talked on the phone, he did reassure me that, that we were going to see each other in November, that he was going to take time off. He was going to decompress and, and start focusing on school.
0: And then, in November, Oscar died. Eddie says that after Oscar's death, people started blaming each other. And since Eddie spent so much time with Oscar, partying with Oscar, some of those people blamed him. I can see how it's a really painful topic for Eddie. But what I'm reading between the lines is maybe some people thought Eddie was an enabler, the older friend who was a bad influence.
4: I wasn't treated very fairly by the cool people because they were younger than me after his death because there was different caps. Those caps um, had theories of how Oscar died.
0: And then others blamed Oscar himself.
4: These young people, they're not really very understanding of life, Oscar this and Oscar that, but it's like you're missing the point of the human being. Yes, he drank, yes, he smoked too much at the end, but that wasn't his soul, you can't define him for that. And we're not trying to. No, and I'm not saying that you are, but i am saying a lot of people, I hear that all the time. What was Oscar doing there? Why was he doing that? You know, it's like, come on,
0: fuck. Eddie, I don't want to bring up, it's painful, I know, but um, can you share something of what your emotions were?
4: I was fucked up. I was pretty fucked up for a long
0: time. Eddie says a few of his friends saw how much pain he was going through. They told me,
4: Eddie, you didn't kill Oscar. It's not your fault.
0: You know. Why would they?
4: Well, because I think they thought that I blame myself. Because, like I said, you know, I talk to Oscar all the time, and we kind of,
0: when he was, you know, he's getting fucked up. What I'm thinking about here is how much pain was caused by people pointing fingers at each other after Oscar's death. It reminds me of what happened to Oscar's friend Noel, Nene Huerta. But when I bring up Noel to Eddie, Eddie echoes what others have told us, that he thinks Oscar was murdered and that Noel knew something about it and didn't speak up. I believe that
4: Some people know that there was people there that have information that they never shared. And I'm just going to say straight
0: up, Nene, he was there and he knows. Eddie, is there a possibility of a scenario in which there are two tragedies here, the tragedy of the Gomez family and the tragedy of the Huerta family? in the loss of those two men?
4: How about a third? How about the tragedy of his friends, of the people that loved him? Don't they count? Nah, man. How about the people? How about the people? He was a voice of people of people who didn't have a voice. And that was one thing They, oh, my God, he drank. Oh, my God, he smoked. But, oh, my God, when he got on that microphone. And, oh, my God, when he put a needle to vinyl. And when he made sense and didn't have to talk because the music talked for him.
0: I've heard so many of Oscar's friends say how amazing Oscar was, how they could never live up to him. But what strikes me is that so many of them, including Eddie, are doing good for the world. Oscar's brother, Eddie Gomez, is a firefighter. His closest childhood friends run a scholarship foundation in his name. His radio show fan, Rosanna, is a social worker.
3: And what's your profession now?
0: Since March of
4: 1976, I work with youth. Today, presently, I'm an academic intervention specialist, bilingual senior with Twin Rivers Unified School District, and I'm responsible for 300 English learners. They're from all over the world. And they speak all kinds of languages. And one thing about them all, they're poor and they're kids. And whether you like it or not, that's the future. Thursday, two Muslim girls came into my room and asked me if they could pray. And I said, of course. They trusted me to pray. That's huge. And they trusted me enough to ask me if they could come
0: in my room or pray. I'm going to say it because I am thinking it. You know Oscar would be proud of you now. You know that. Yeah. And... You know, I'm not here to heal you, but I'm only here to reflect back what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I know.
4: Yeah, I, you know, and I feel, like,
0: I feel like I let
4: him down, you know. I guess the thing is that it's that unknown of what Oscar would be doing. You know, what would Oscar do? What, what would he be? I don't know. Twenty seven years. Man, it seems like yesterday. You know, and all this stuff, it just makes me it brings up
0: all these things and it's like, what the fuck, man? You know? I think you said it, we don't know. And we gotta be we gotta sit with that. And I'm just saying llegado here in the sense of like, you know, just kinda coming in trying to tell a story and you guys are gonna you know. So, um, I pre- we appreciate your uh, time and openness, and you know, yeah. really appreciate it, Eddie. Thank you. Gracias,
3: Oscar.
0: I'm starting to see the human underneath your radio persona, below the homeboy clothes and the intense stare. I see how you wanted your voice to lift the most marginalized people. And now I also see how you struggled under the weight of how badly you wanted to change the world. And I'm thinking of your legacy too, the way Eddie and so many others have mourned you, not just as a person, but as a future leader. Oscar, what was your impact on the Chicano movement? And does the movement even exist anymore? That's after the break.
3: Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water.
0: I meet Yvette Ale ferlito at a small park near Dodger Stadium. One of the reasons I want to talk with Yvette is because I've heard from various academics and activists about how Oscar's death was a loss to the movement. But I've realized I haven't talked to anyone who's doing organizing work today. Yvette is just that person.
3: I am the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Dignity and Power Now and the co-founder of La Defensa, Both are abolitionist, black and brown-led organizations that fight for the dignity and the power of communities impacted by incarceration and policing and violence. Yvette,
0: when you hear the name Oscar Gomez, what comes to mind?
3: Oh, revolutionary. Brilliant. Uh, Tragic. When did you first hear about him? Do you remember? Probably in college. I probably read about him in a textbook. Yeah, I would take some Chicano studies courses, and then, you know, years later, doing abolitionist organizing. Um, I want to say it was it was during a conversation at Chuco's Justice Center um, in South LA. We got to discuss more deeply about the histories of uh, the Chicanx movement and Oscar specifically. Um, so. I've been learning about him uh, throughout the years, and particularly, you know, because, like, I'm a DJ as well. Oh, are you really? Yeah, yeah. not a radio DJ. Um, I'm a club DJ.
0: I see Yvette's work as part of Oscar's legacy. It's the kind of multifaceted organizing that Oscar preached on his show. But I'm wondering if Yvette sees things the same way. I'm Gen X. (laughs) I'm 53 (laughs) years old. How would you identify as generation, generation?
3: Yeah, I I identify as an older millennial. (laughs) I was born in 1985. So I I grew up in the 90s uh, here in Southern California. Um, I immigrated from Mexico uh, when I was about four years old. And I identify as both Mexican and Cuban. Uh, My father's Cuban, my mother's Mexican. So I grew up in a multicultural um, Latinx household. And in terms of how I identify in my Position here in the United States, I very much identify as Mexican. I'm not a U.S. citizen. I grew up undocumented. I don't identify as a Mexican-American. I'm very much Mexican, Um, although I exist in the space between uh, Mexicanidad and the Chicano experience. As an undocumented person, I very much felt excluded from the quote-unquote Mexican-American experience. Um, I'm a queer femme. And I also exist in that intersection of of queerness, of um, immigrant community, of, uh, you know, chicanx, latinidad.
0: Yvette's energy reminds me of Oscar's. Yvette is so bold and articulate in expressing their identity, whereas I struggle with being upfront about my background, even now. And back in college in the 90s, we didn't have many of the terms Yvette is using. Hearing them makes me proud of how far we've come and that we've found language to describe ourselves more fully. Yvette is currently working on pushing two California state bills that have to do with creating alternatives to incarceration. That means meetings in Sacramento, giving public testimony during committee hearings, and backing progressive candidates on the local and state ballots. Unlike the Chicanos of the 1960s, Yvette doesn't see themselves as part of an identity-based movement.
3: It's much more intersectional, right? Where in the Chicano movement of the 1960s, you know, women and queer people were really left out of leadership. It was about supporting the men that are on, you know, the front lines, making sure that there's food and snacks at meetings, which is, you know, why there may be some resistance to using other terminology like chicanx or latinx to really um address some of the harms and missteps how can we be better right how can we use the creativity and fluidity of language to be able to create more inclusive spaces right because it's not about erasing the history of the chicano movement it's about building on it right and and also looking back retracing our steps like where do we fuck up
0: I've been thinking a lot about my cohort of activists in the 1990s. A Chicana and Chicano studies professor I talked to said he thought of these 90s Chicano activists as the bridge between the civil rights struggle of the 60s and the far more intersectional organizing happening today. He sees the 90s as a time when activists were planting seeds for larger ideas about intersectionality, a time when the conversation expanded from rights to respect when conversations about coalition building and dignity started happening. I want to share some of that with Yvette. So I've brought them some flyers and Chicano student newspapers from the mid-1990s.
3: Yeah, this is interesting. Um, there, there's what a, does it say? Libertad para Prisioneros Políticos. So it's a, it's a call to liberate political prisoners.
0: And it's got something here about Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's an African-American activist, who's, many people say, wrongly incarcerated. Wow, does that strike a chord with some of your activism now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The the beautiful history of the Chicano movement really is at the intersection of solidarity work with other communities.
0: I also show Yvette a call-out for a youth meeting in La Gente, UCLA's Chicano student newspaper.
3: Proisters. This was really interesting what too, though. So it's called Bienestar Youth. Bienestar hosts youth group gatherings for young gay, lesbian, bisexual, bi curious, and it reads transgendered Latino youth. Um, now we use transgender, but it all. But it, this is really interesting because um, it also names bisexual, bi curious um, uh, here in the gathering, and it's really. Powerful that this is included in a Chicano newspaper um, and that there was organizing around queer identity in the 90s, that that intersectionality. 1996. Yeah, that's really powerful.
0: I tell Yvette about one of Oscar's former UC Davis professors, a Chicano artist and activist who held Oscar and his activism in such high regard that he told us he thought Oscar could have been the next Cesar Chavez, and that without him, The movement fizzled. He said, you know, the Chicano movement could have been a lot more if there were more Oscars. And he he feels like there haven't been.
3: Yeah, not only do we need more Oscars, we need more of everyone. Not everyone is a charismatic speaker. Not everyone has the privilege to go to college. Um, Not everyone has access. And so part of organizing a strong movement is to meet folks where they're at. What I would like to impart is that we all have a role to play in our liberation and this impulse that all of our movements have to to worship a a charismatic leader to feel like damn like they died so there therefore the movement falls apart well that says a lot about the structure of the organizing and the movement if all of it rests on one charismatic leader that's not a leaderful movement that is not the type of movement that's sustainable um and so i i I tend to reject the idea that one person holds our liberation and that we need, you know, a thousand Oscars in order to be um, successful in our work. This has been
0: so enriching. I
3: really appreciate it.
0: I stay in the park, and the word liberation, as Yvette said it, echoes with the wind and the birds. I feel a sense of pride in seeing the legacy of the Chicano movement through Yvette's work. I also think about Oscar, and whether he'd agree with Yvette that a movement should not put so much hope on one glorified leader. Maybe he would have bristled at being seen like that in the first place. And I feel validation in the way Yvette framed the movement, that you don't need to feel inadequate because you're not Oscar, that there's a need in the movement for everyone, laborers, social workers, and public radio reporters. And I'm still thinking about my desire to know the truth about what went down the night Oscar died and about the people who were there. It
1: was like 2, 3 in the morning, and they were saying that I took them to go
4: dump a body. I was like,
0: what? That's in the next episode. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is written, reported, and hosted by me, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Natalie Chudnovsky is the lead producer, and our associate producers are James Chow and Francisco Avilespino. Editing by Audrey Quinn. The show is a production of Elias Studios. Antonia Cerejido and Leo G are the executive producers for Elias Studios. Fact checking by Audrey Regan. Mixing by our engineer, E. Scott Kelly and special engineering thanks to Sean Campbell. Our music supervisor is Doris Anahi Munoz. The music is written, performed, and recorded by Joseph Quiñones at Secondhand Sounds in Rialto, California. Our website, Elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Emily Guerin, and Leo G. Imperfect Paradise, the Forgotten Revolutionary, is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.